Hey, y'all. Have you ever heard of Old Gods of Appalachia? Well, if you haven't, you have now. Let me tell you. This is a horror anthology podcast, and it is absolutely amazing. They have characters. They have actors. They have different people doing voiceovers. It is so ridiculously dope. Y'all got to check this out. Um... I'm, I'm like, I'm enthralled. I'm, I I can't stop listening to it. This shit is crazy. And I got to tell you, all the actors are, they're straight, they're queer, they're black, they're of color, they're male, they're female, they're they, thems, they, thems. They just, this thing is so diverse, man. And, and there's, there's actually some poets involved with this that I actually admire. So this is a big deal. Y'all got to check out Old Gods of Appalachia wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Your fam, Black Fluid Poet. Check it out. If you love this podcast, I want to thank you for favoriting the podcast because it means the world to me. However... The way I can get more advertisers is to have more subscribers. If advertisers um, see that um, I have a lot of subscribers, they will be more willing to give me opportunities to advertise for them. So in order for me to get these ads, I need to get to a decent amount of subscribers. So you come here to anchor.fm and you go to support and you can pick 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. Please feel free to pick 99 cents. I, I I am overjoyed at anyone who wants to support my dream of getting this podcast taking off. You know what I'm saying? So please just consider it. If I could get a thousand subscribers, I could get out of this poverty thing. You know what I'm saying? Because yo, the struggle is real. Y'all take care. Hey, y'all. This is John S. Blake, Black Fluid Poet, coming to you from my humble abode of books. (sighs) Well, the quarantine still ain't cute, y'all. You know, last night, I thought I was, you know, something was wrong. Like, I was just really tired at a very early hour. And that's just not me. Like, I think I went to bed... At around 11.30, 11 o'clock. I was in bed before midnight. And that never happens. And it was a pretty busy day at work. But it's always a busy day at work. So that's that's not it. And then I realized um, I was kind of drained. And I wasn't sure what I was drained about. I just knew I was drained, right? So, you know, I'm going to bed. And I got in the bed And I suddenly had a resentment with myself because one, I didn't take off my makeup. And then two, I didn't pray. And I was, as soon as I realized I didn't pray, I should have got out of bed, you know, and just done my ritual. Um, But I found myself just unwilling. I was like, no, just forget it. It's, and, and somewhere in my head, there was this small voice that was like, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it to get out of bed and pray right now. It's just ridiculous. Just go to sleep. And I went to bed. And then I woke up this morning. And I was up really early. Because a lot of you know I, um, I've i been 
changing my meds around. So when I took less medication, I suddenly found myself sleeping less. So I woke up this morning after going to bed at 11. I was up this morning, y'all, like 7 a.m. Um, 11, 11.30, I think I went to bed. But I, the first time I woke up was 5.30. And I was like, yo, this is way too fucking early to start your day. But I couldn't go back to sleep. Because that's what happens when I take less medication. If I take more medication, I can sleep better. But... um also, I find myself unable to get up and function. So I was like, you know what? Let's make this a positive. You've probably just gotten enough sleep. Let's just get up and start our day. So I got up, made coffee, you know. And then I knew I had to go to work today. So I checked my cash app, make sure I got enough money to get my lift. And I was like, I should have enough money. I should have over $100 in there. And T-Mobile, y'all just straight jacked my account for $96. And I was like, I don't remember giving them permission to just snatch my money like that. You know, like I've made payments. I make payments every month. But I don't remember ever agreeing to T-Mobile just jacking money from my account. So I woke up to $9 in my account and I was heated. Now, mind you, I hadn't had my coffee yet. But I was heated. I was ready to call T-Mobile and call them everything but a child of God. But I didn't. I made my coffee. And I lit my cigarette like I'm doing right now. Mm. And then I sat down and I had my coffee. Halfway through my coffee, I'm still angry. I finished my coffee. I'm still angry. I light another cigarette. I'm bothered. I am bothered beyond... Uh, any kind of rational thought. Like I had to, you, you ever been mad about something small and been like, why the fuck are you so mad about this small shit? That's the kind of mad I was. And then like, I got angry with myself for being angry about this money. And I was like, no, I know me. And and this is, for me, this is something that I'm I'm blessed to have this. You know, I've worked so hard on mindfulness and I've worked so hard on being in the moment. And I've worked so hard on self-reflection that I was able to take a step back and say, no, John, there's something else wrong because you don't get angry about something like $96. Like you just don't. Because, I mean, if if I'm being completely honest, if I was to get on TikTok right now or even just mention in this podcast that, yo, I'm short money to get a lift. I would have $200 in an hour because there's a lot of followers who wouldn't want to see me miss my miss work and lose my job, right? Now, mind you, I did uh, request $20 from a good friend. Shout out to Dana. And she sent me $20. So I have money to get to work. So please do not send me any money. That being said, um. I took this reflection and I was like, okay, what's really wrong? And I'll tell you what's been bothering me. Misogyny. I can't tell you how angry I am at the social contract that I signed on to from childhood all the way up until about 40. 
before I realized the harm I was causing, right? And I'm still angry that I never backed up and said, hold on, like, this is wrong. Um, everything that I learned for the first four decades of my life about what it meant to be a man was wrong. And y'all, I can't tell you how hot I am about that. And the reason why all of that came up was because of this, I don't know what kind of insult to come up with for this individual in Atlanta. This dude who went around just killing people at massage parlors, right? Allegedly, because of his sex addiction, he was trying to get rid of the things he blamed for his sex addiction, right? So I'm going to dissect all of that in a minute. And what I just said doesn't even give justice to how I feel about it, all right? What I'm just trying to do is make a clear statement. But in watching the rationalizations and the justifications and the minimalization by the police department over this man's actions, um, that has, it, it, it's, a, it's a sword in my side. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, really, it's really affected me. And I can no longer ignore how... I rationalized my own behavior, blamed other people for my own choices, and the people who enabled me to do so for countless amounts of years. You know, I um I was bothered because this man whose name I just his name escapes me because I'm just getting upset now thinking about it. But this man, whether or not he has a sex addiction to me is irrelevant because that misses the point. The point is he was just, he felt justified in murdering people because he was frustrated. I have never in my life and y'all, I have decades of drug addiction behind me, okay? I have never in my life, it had never occurred to me to murder bartenders and drug dealers to help me get clean. I have never looked at them and said, you're the fucking reason I'm a drunk and a drug addict because you keep giving me this shit. So... I've never heard of a compulsive gambler who just walked into, you know, poker halls or casinos and just started blowing people away because it's their fault he gambled. Never heard of it. I've just, maybe I've just missed the stories, but that hasn't been a news headline that I have seen as of yet. And the objectification that this man placed on Asian women is the real problem, okay? I'm, what I'm talking about right now is toxic masculinity on steroids. How's that from misogynist? Like, he really said, if 
Asian women weren't doing what they did to him, he wouldn't have had to kill them. Now, whether he said that verbatim, I doubt. Um, but that is the explanation that he gave the police, in turn, the police gave to us, was that he was having a bad day. A bad day with his own personal demons. And he thought the cure for his personal demons is to rid himself of the places he goes to escape from his personal demons. What? Let me get that one more again. I am a recovering addict. And if I get urges to use, somewhere in my head, it would make sense that if I just go out here and kill all the drug addicts around me and all the drug dealers around me, that would really help me with my urges for using. No, it wouldn't. Of course it wouldn't. Of course it's irrational. That's not what's up for debate. What's up for debate is somewhere in his life, this man learned that he could go out here and kill people. That somewhere in his head, as a white cishet man in the United States of America, <clears throat> that became an option for him. And if we don't start addressing this, this issue of white supremacy, this issue of uh, patriarchy, this issue of male violence, we are not as a country going to get any better. You could lower taxes, you could raise taxes, you could make college free, but I'm trying to tell you, whether college educated or not, whether poor or wealthy, if we don't start teaching ourselves, our children, and our neighbors that white men can't just go out here and do whatever the hell they want to do without suffering severe consequences, shit is only going to get worse. I mean, if we just take this back to January 6th, I mean, we don't have to go throughout history. I mean, there's centuries of this problem. But if we just go back to January 6th, where thousands upon thousands of white men thought it was their right to storm the Capitol building. And I don't want to hear any rationalizations about whether the police let them in or not, because they didn't. Some police, you know felt like they were safe. Some politicians had the audacity, the caucasity, to say, you know, I didn't feel threatened by these white men with zip ties and pipe bombs and earpieces and military gear who, you know, beat a police officer to death outside, one of them using a Blue Lives Matter flagpole to do it. I didn't feel threatened. When I feel threatened, it's usually Black Lives Matter. We're, we're not even going to... I mean, right there, that rationalization, that shift of narrative 
that it isn't white people who are violent and dangerous, even while white people are being violent and dangerous, right? That shift right there is the white supremacy that scares me to death. Because what this politician told the families of men who are right now sitting in prison looking at multiple felonies, this politician told their families, it wasn't that bad. It's okay. It's all right. I can take that and superimpose it onto this sheriff, this this officer who said, well, I mean, the guy was just having a bad day and this is what he thought he should do about it. Now, I do think... Um, I do think that what he was doing was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not quoting, but um, b- given the gist of what this terrorist said. And uh, he thought that that would be acceptable to just give a brief description of what the guy told the police. He was having a bad day and this made sense to him. However, I thought it was the sheriff's responsibility to recenter the narrative on how absolutely deplorable, despicable, and disgusting this act was. And when he didn't do that, it triggered all of us, me included. I thought that for him to let that be the message to society... It was something in his tone, right, that bothered me. And I I couldn't, for the life of me, I couldn't, I didn't have the words for it when I saw it last night. And I think this is what made me so drained when I went to bed. His tone was, I'm tired of these massage parlors. And if they weren't here, this dude wouldn't be as fucked up as he is. And that victim blaming tone he took, this certain tilt of the head and half shrug he did when he told the story of like, you know, well, you know, this is what's going to happen as long as these massage parlors are out here. These, these, these poor guys, you know, who can't help themselves, who have no self-control, you know, and these massage parlors enabling his behavior, you know, I mean, he just lost it. I, I mean, that's what happens. It's no different than if he were to say, you know, a drunk driver murders a family, which is a whole nother story I'm not going to get into right now. But a, a drunk driver murders a family. And, you know, if these bars, you know, didn't exist to get them drunk, then this wouldn't have happened, you know. And it totally, it, it totally uh, abolishes, it it just dismisses any of the um any of the choices that this man made any of the conscious decisions he made you know cleaning his gun loading the bullets i mean all of this takes time he knew where all the massage parlors were he drove to each one of them i mean this is mass murder in the first degree and what this officer did was just make public a defense 
for this terrorist. He just made public a defense for insanity for this terrorist. It's like, whose side are you on, dude? And you know whose side he's on? White cis-head men. That's whose side he's on. He said, everybody's out to get us. You know, these Asian women and their, you know, their sex drive and, and their, you know, them pushing their agenda of, of, you know, taking advantage of white men who can't control themselves sexually. And, you know, these black people who piss off police officers and so police officers have no choice but to start pulling the trigger. I'm tired. I'm tired. And even telling you that right now, that's why when I went to bed last night, I felt hopeless because I scrolled through TikTok and all I saw was black people trying to assure Asian people that we need to work together more and more and more. I saw Asian people in tears, in absolute tears. And let me tell you, culturally, that's a fucking rarity. You know, when it comes to Asian culture, you often do not see that much emotion expressed in a public forum. And my God, it hurt so bad. I was crushed because if there's something that I know about friends of mine who have been Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, is that you ain't going to find a lot of these people out here just crying on camera. It's just a part of the cultures that, that I've learned, you know, it's a rarity. Now, whether it's good, bad, healthy or not healthy, that's not the point. The point is that's a part of that culture. You know, um, and to see people breaking down the way they were in one of the most powerful nations on earth. I mean, we can just fly to another country, install another government and change all the rules. And folks just sitting around like, hold up, why are you even here? And they're like, just shush here, go sit down. But we can't in this country protect citizens from terrorism, from white supremacist terrorism. I mean, there's, and, and here's why I say this is white supremacist terrorism, okay? And this is why it's racist. Atlanta is one of the biggest hubs for strip club culture, all right? Atlanta has an amazing array of attractive women. And I'm particularly talking about you know, cisgender heterosexual men right now. That's who I'm addressing. This man could have gotten laid anywhere in Atlanta, okay? There are plenty of places where sex work is available. He didn't even have to leave his house. There are sex workers that will come to your house in Atlanta and help you with what is ailing you at the moment. No, this man... Uh, decisively and explicitly chose these Asian massage parlors to satisfy whatever compulsions he has. And then turned around and blamed the massage parlors for the choices he makes. 
Now, addiction is real. I don't dispute that at all. However, if I get busted with a bag of heroin, they're not going to blame the drug dealer. They may want me to rat out my drug dealer, but make no mistake, I'm still doing time. I'm still, you know, going to end up on on probation. I'm still going to have to answer for the decisions I made, regardless of where I got the drugs from, regardless on where it's being shipped from, what country it came from. None of that matters. What matters is this was the direction I chose for my addiction. And I have to answer for what I did because what I did was against the law. Okay, this man sat at home frustrated. Maybe he was frustrated because he ran out of money because that's usually when addicts go buck wild. But he didn't, you know, steal money from his mama's purse to head back to the massage parlor, which was an option. He didn't say, well, you know, I only got $30, so... You know, I may as well just go to a strip club, buy me a drink, and, you know, ogle women. No, he didn't do that. That was an option. He could have done an array of things. No, this man said, I need to kill Asian women who may or may not be sex workers, who may or not be may not be trafficked, who may or may not be desperate and undocumented. None of that is my problem. What my problem is is I need to be rid of Asian massage parlors so I can get my fetish under control. The fact that he objectified Asian women as the object of his fetishes, the fact that he fetishized an entire population of people from a marginalized community, that is where the white supremacy comes from. He could have went outside and shot every white woman in his community who had an attractive body because he was a sex addict. He didn't do that. He drove 30 miles, went to different establishments and selected Asian people to murder. Asian women who were just minding their damn business and murdered them. Now, he could have been mad that he was broke because he didn't have the money to go, but he didn't go rob a bank. He didn't go shoot eight white people at the nearest Wells Fargo. No, he goes to the massage parlors and murders people. And we all know that if that was what he thought was the solution, There was no way it was going to work. He was just angry. And to tell you the truth, as a recovering addict, I've been that angry when I've called the dealer and asked the dealer if he could hook me up with some credit until I go to work. And if he said no, now I'm pissed. And I will bet a bazillion dollars that he's a regular in these massage parlors And he ran out of money and he was like, hey, could I get a freebie? And they said no. And that's what set him off. I would would bet my life on that. That this is just another white man who didn't get his fucking way. No different 
than that young man in Florida who got rejected by a girl and decided to load an AR-15 and shoot up a school. No different than the plethora of white men who stormed the Capitol because their candidate didn't win a fair election. No different than the white politicians who went on Fox News and threw these man-baby tantrums about how this election was corrupt and how these constituents need to just cause a ruckus, these constituents being the majority white men, cis genders, heterosexual white men, and they need to do whatever they need to do to get their way. That is white supremacy. That is patriarchy, and that is toxic masculinity and misogyny, all wrapped up with a pretty red, white, and blue bow. And it hurts. And when I woke up this morning, all of that was on my mind. Every iota of that. And I woke up and scrolled through TikTok, and I don't remember the man's name, but there was an Asian man who made a TikTok video. And there was just, he said, you know, the last time I had a bad day, and this tear rolled down one of his cheeks as he stared out a window and the sunlight was hitting half of his face. And the pain was so apparent that I cried. And let me tell you, I'm on so much antidepressants that crying takes nothing short than an act of God, okay? But it was visceral because, again, from what I know from the friends I've had from Asian communities, public displays of sadness are not, you know, they're, they're frowned upon. And I broke. I broke. It had nothing to do with a phone bill. I just broke because I'm so tired some days I'm tired of having any masculine qualities at all because they all scare me. You know, I remember going to see um, the movie 16 Candles when I was a teenager. And I went with my mother. And I recall sitting in the theater and there was a scene in this movie. It was with Molly Ringwald. And if you've never seen the movie, then this is going to get lost on you. But, um, so we're, we're in the movie theater and I'm watching this movie and, you know, there was the problematic Asian clown, you know, where this is how white people see Asian people with, you know, these God awful, uh, gibberish accents and, um, a lot of strange noises coming out of him, you know, coming out of his mouth. And he was just a clown. He was a caricature. And there was the, you know, whenever white people are smoking weed, they all of a sudden start talking in Ebonics um, because, you know, drugs are associated with the black community. Now, mind you, this was the 80s. And this the movie was about, you know, coming of age, I guess, for young white suburban kids, basically. And towards the end of this movie, there is the nerd who, you know, never gets lucky with the girls having a conversation with the quarterback of the football team, most popular guy in school, and 
the nerd has the phone number to a girl who is Molly Ringwald. And the quarterback makes a deal with the nerd. You give me her phone number and I will give you my drunk prom queen girlfriend. And y'all, I was, I don't know, somewhere around 14 years old. It was before my mother went to prison, so it had to be around 14, 15. And I remember sitting in the movie theater next to my mother, and my mother busted out laughing. And so did most of the theater. I don't, I can't tell you because I really wasn't that aware at the time, but I know there was an uproar of laughter throughout the theater. And I remember being hella uncomfortable because I, I, you know, I do remember doing my usual investigative facial expression, raising one eyebrow and kind of, you know, looking around the theater without moving my head. And I remember thinking something about this isn't right. And I couldn't put it into words. I didn't know what was happening because, I mean, we're talking about a time when the word date rape hadn't yet been a part of mainstream uh, society. It, It wasn't discussed by most people. It was a very still considered feminist centered, um, rhetoric that people weren't willing to accept yet. So I remember after the movie, you know, at, at, at the end of the movie, I need to say this at the end of the movie, I remember there was a scene where the hungover prom queen wakes up in the back of a Rolls Royce with the nerd and they're in the backseat and evidently they had had sex. And so the nerd turns to her and said, did you enjoy it? And the whole theater, again, is cracking up laughing, my mother included. And she goes, you know, I think I did. And they started kissing. And right there, right there, that was the lesson that was told to every young cishet white boy on the planet and men in general that if a woman gets drunk, you can have sex with her. She'll enjoy it. She'll be happy the next day. Don't worry about it. Nobody gets upset about that. And so the credits roll. I'm confused. I didn't laugh, but I was—I remember being, and then this is me being honest, y'all. Please, please understand that my point of doing this is to create space where men can start talking about the fucking dysfunction and the toxicity we were taught. And I remember being excited because in my head, someday I'm going to get drunk with a really hot girl and we're going to get to have sex. So we're in the car, my mother and I, and we're leaving and we're headed home. And I said, mom, um, you can just do that. Like when, when girls are drunk, like you can just... Like, I don't know, something something about that was weird. And my mother said something to you, and I don't remember word for word, but I do remember questioning my mother on this because I was confused. And I trusted my mother. My mother was a tough woman. Surely she wouldn't tell me something against other women. 
you know, my mother was white, so surely she wouldn't tell me something against white women, teenagers especially, and me being a teenager, she wouldn't set me up to harm other teenage girls because my mother cared. My mother was a caring woman. She cared about my female friends. You know, she was very protective of all of us. So my mother would never tell me something that would set up a girl to be harmed. And by harmed, I mean raped. I mean sexually assaulted. I mean for me to commit violence against them. And my mother said, John, if that bitch was dumb enough to get drunk and let that shit happen, so be it. It's her own fault. And I said, oh, okay. Or I nodded or something in agreement. It didn't sit right at first, but... You know, my mother told me this. It has to be true, right? Because my mother would never set up women in the future to be harmed. Right? And it is disenabling. It is disenabling that creates monsters. You know, I remember there was a time when California was trying to ban pit bulls. And I thought it was ridiculous because I had a neighbor, I was living in New Jersey at the time, and I had a neighbor who had a pit bull. And this pit bull was the friendliest, nicest dog I'd ever seen. Now, does the pit bull have the potential to do harm? Fuck yeah. Locked jaw, teeth, muscles everywhere. That dog, you know, that dog would tear apart a tree. But it never did. It never bit. You know, the kids played with it, rolled all over it, you know. And I was like, why would anybody, why would any state ban a dog that's so nice? And then they, they show you these depictions of pit bulls and pit bull rings and blood and torn skin and you know, how they threw smaller dogs in to start the fights and yada, yada, yada. And it was like, see, these pit bulls, they, you know, they're dangerous. They're dangerous. And there's no talk about the men, mostly. Cisgender, heterosexual men, mostly. Misogynist men, mostly. Who trained these dogs to kill. Who starved these dogs into aggression, who beat these dogs into a hyper uh, awareness and a hyper vigilance towards anything coming to harm them, anything coming within pro close proximity is possibly going to harm them. And then they unleash these dogs on each other and then blame the dogs. And I think about how I was starved for honesty. I was starved for understanding and explanations by the public school system, by my own mother. I was afraid of not being seen as a man. And the opportunities to have sex, it was throughout my adolescence, throughout my 20s, even into my 30s. If a woman gives you the eye, man, you better 
you better do something, man. You're a man. You, you know, supposed to, you know, make that happen. And I think about how both the black community and the Asian community are starved for justice. And I think about how these men in particular, because it is such a patriarchy that we still are fighting, I think about how these men and their manhoods are constantly brought into question. And then white America unleashes these people on each other. Well, you know, the Chinese treat blacks like shit. Or, you know, it's mostly black guys out here assaulting Chinese people and Asian people in San Francisco and New York City and set them in a ring against each other. Isn't it amazing how easily led by the nose so many of us are? I think that's what's going through my head. And the voices of reason that are coming mostly from women of color go unheeded by the majority of cishet men because, I mean, they're a woman. They complain. That's what women do. They bitch, they complain, yada, yada. And they don't heed. Like, to be real for real, black women have been trying to tell the United States of America since the fucking 1600s that this shit is wrong. That leading with violent aggression by men is wrong. And this trauma that has been passed down generation after generation after generation, this constant making of excuses for white male violence in this country. It's just, it, it's overwhelming, y'all. It's overwhelming. There was, um, I don't remember her name right now. And I, I was desperate for her to write a book and it, it has yet to be published. And I'm sure she has more than one uh, scholarly article out there. But there is a woman I can't remember her name, but I, if I explain this to you and you Google it, you will find her. Boston, uh, University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, was it Boston? No, I think just UMass, right? University of Massachusetts, black woman sociologist. It was about uh, maybe 10 years ago. She got in hot water. The news was all over her ass because she said the most dangerous demographic in society are white cishet men. And if we didn't start to address this issue, we were going to have problems. She said that shit 10 fucking years ago and she caught hell. She was at risk of losing her job. The university was trying to silence her. And... I remember emailing her like, yo, I just tell me, like, tell me, tell me what to do, you know, and I don't remember what came of it. I know she did give me a reference of some stuff to read and I'm pretty sure I read it because I remember when I got to the Virginia Commonwealth University and I began studying 
African-American history and poetry, I remember I so desperately wanted to take a sexuality, gender, and women's studies class to learn about some of this stuff. But that was just a prime example of someone trying to tell us just a decade ago. I mean, never mind the years before that. A decade ago, somebody was trying to tell us that this shit is fucked. And we just don't listen. There are eight people dead because of a problem we have ignored for centuries. And we just can't ignore it anymore. And I hope that I hope that this podcast gets played because I know most of the people who follow my, my podcast, it's, it's the same demographics that follow me on uh, TikTok. It's, it's like 85% women. And I hope some of you play this for your sons, for your husbands, because what I'm about to say pretty much encapsulates my entire upbringing. My father, my father was a pimp. You know, my mother worked in after hours joints and she met my father, you know, in the late nights. My dad was a hustler. And if you had asked my mother before she died, you know, what she thought of my dad, my dad said, you know, my my mom would have described my father as good looking, a snazzy dresser and one of the most, no, the most charming motherfucker I had ever met. That would be what my mother would say. And that has been the low bar of expectations for far too many of us. To dress nice, teeth white, have a job, you know, say all the right things. I mean, that's, the, that's such a low bar. That's such a low bar. And my dad, when I was a kindergartner, my dad taught me how to play chess. And when he was going through all the pieces, you know, this is a pawn, this is how the pawns move, knight, rook, bishop, this is the king. Now, if you lose the king, you lose the game. That's it. The game's over. You have to protect the king at all costs. He did the queen last. And this was my father's lesson verbatim. This right here is the queen. This is your bitch. Now you got to keep your bitch close because she makes all the best moves for the king. Now, if it comes down to it and you have to sacrifice her to save the king, well, then you sacrifice your bitch because at the end of the day, she's just another piece to lose or keep. But what's most important is the king. And no matter what, the king must survive at all costs. I got to get ready for work. And I hope y'all have a good day. And uh, we'll talk more about this issue throughout the week, next week. Um, I want to make some... I want to make a five-part series on the misogyny I learned growing up. And maybe, just maybe, instead of us talking about consent, 
um, to to overcome sexual assault, we start talking about aggression and misogyny and toxic masculinity. Because at the end of the day, a toxic man has no interest in discussing consent. Y'all have a good day.